Hi everyone, welcome to Financial Planning Conversations, the podcast about giving great financial advice and matching people with the right investments. I'm Craig Saunders, please do forgive my somewhat croaky voice this time around. Today, we all know that trust is the foundation of a financial services business, but we seldom unpack that word trust to reveal the complexities that lie hidden within it. What exactly does trust look like? How is it created? How is it destroyed? And what difference does it really make to your business anyway? Well, they're the questions we'll be answering for you today. The bottom line for financial advisors is that trust really does make a big difference to retaining clients, winning new funds under advice, and getting referrals for new business. But first, a message from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Plan Plus Global, the company behind Plan Plus Planet, My Plan Plus, and Finometrica. And so, to trust and all its complexities. That sense of unease you often feel when someone says to you, now you can trust me, well that's a bit of a clue as to just how tricky this subject can be. Luckily, a couple of researchers at Vanguard in the US have done a deep dive into the details of trust, putting together a survey that uncovered a lot of the facts that we really need to know. It's a great report and freely available online. Just Google Trust and Financial Advice Vanguard and it will float up to the top of your search results. It breaks trust up into three components, which shed a lot of light on what customers consider important in their advisors. First, there is functional trust. That's things like your abilities, qualifications and knowledge. Pretty important, you'd think, but it only accounts for 17% of what creates trust. And that all happens right at the start of the relationship before they get to know you. Ethics is almost twice as important, accounting for 30% of overall trust. Acting ethically includes charging reasonable fees that are fully disclosed, being free of conflicts of interest, and acting in the client's best interest. So where is the other 53% of what builds trust? Well, it's in emotional factors. These are intangibles in the relationship that give clients positive feelings towards their advisors. The report quotes the examples of the investor being able to say, well, my advisor is my advocate. They provide me a sense of relief or they make me feel that my portfolio is important. When you distill the numbers, the two biggest drivers of trustworthiness are advocating for a client and acting in the client's best interest. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because you've heard similar sentiments here many times before from our regular commentator, Paul Resnick from Plan Plus Global. And he's here with us now. Hi, Paul. G'day, Craig. Paul, you've been saying it for a while, and this Vanguard research proves it to be true. To be trusted, you have to act in a trustworthy way. It seems blindingly obvious, doesn't it, in all of our relationships, uh, that, that they're a function of how well people respond to our needs and how consistently we talk with each other. Um, and the people that disappoint us are the ones that surprise us and surprise us on the downside. We aren't working in, in risk tolerance by accident. Um, when we got the business, when we started the business years ago, we realised that um, it was negative surprises that caused the greatest of traumas for clients. And uh, um, I was just thinking back with the... Um, with the celebration, if you will, of the October 87 crash, the number of clients that arrived at my door um, saying, guys, you in your offer documents, you never told us how bad this marketplace was going to be. And in fact, it's much worse than we ever imagined. And uh, it goes back to 87 and that experience of uh, no surprises, which is a core part of, uh, of our belief that to be trusted, you behave in a trustworthy manner. What leaps out is the positive business consequences 
of having those high trust relationships, that, that greater loyalty, more referrals, better business outcomes all around. It's the stuff that you dream of in a business. Um, we're, we're all pretty good manufacturers. Finding clients is a challenge. And uh, to, to balance off our world now, we've got automation arriving, enabling us to actually service more people. Um, we want to have a competitive marketing advantage without inordinate amount of money. The best way to do that is to invest in the quality of your communication, and that comes from consistency, and it's consistency that brings trust. Well, the good news for advisors, I guess, eight out of 10 clients gave them high trust ratings, but at the same time, nearly a quarter had suffered an experience that had undermined trust, and in some cases, it even caused them to dump their advisor for a new one. So clearly, there's, there is some room for improvement. I've no doubt. Um, advisory businesses are professionalising at a, at a great rate, but uh, there's a whole generation of advisors that uh, haven't gone through uh, 2008 um, or a 2000 or an 87 or a 94. Um, each of those is different. And in each country, it's different. In each portfolio, it's different. Um, so, so framing expectations around generalizations is, is one of the, the critically difficult things to do. And one of the things I think we've all learned from the 2008 correction was that uh, if you bailed out at the market in, at the bottom of the correction, while everything went down in a correlated manner, it didn't come up in a correlated manner. And uh, you needed to be pretty fully invested in the recovery to get the full benefits of it. I outlined at the top of the show those three components of trust where emotional trust was the biggest one. It accounted for more than half. Did that surprise you? Um, it was reassuring. Um, you know, we're, to some degree, though we, we started off in the science of psychometrics, um, we've been talking with people now for 20-odd years and increasingly they tell us about the emotional sides of their uh, of their relationships with clients, you know, having conversations with clients, being open and transparent, working to resolve conflicts, trade-offs between husbands and wives, between uh, individuals' capacity for loss and their preference for lifestyle. All of that requires an openness and, and a vulnerability, both for the advisor and the client. And in the middle of vulnerability, um, emotion is the... Uh, is the currency. So um, good to see it um, and to have it reassuringly um, expressed in such a coherent manner in the report. And that word vulnerability is the one that comes up as being a key component of trust, that you have to expose yourself as, as vulnerable to the other person. But th there is an interesting sort of paradox that comes in here. A lot of people believe that the pathway to professional success is to reinforce your professional skills, your technical skills, your credentials. And they're certainly important because you don't get to play without them. And that's how when people don't know you, that's what they look to for proof that you're competent, I guess. But what this report shows is it's only ever 17% or so to begin with. And it drops away really quickly. Once people get to know you, how ethical you are and how you run the relationship is what decides the future. And that's all about your communication, isn't it? In the early stages, um, the communication is quite remote. It comes off your website. Once you get to meet people and talk with them, um, and once, once you've worked through the, the challenges of, of the trade-offs, um, I, I need to come back to that, that 
Nothing is straightforward. Um, we often um, refer back to Daniel Kahneman and System 1 and System 2 thinking. Um, financial planning is firmly entrenched in System 2. It requires efforts from both parties, the, the advisor and the clients, to, to reach uh, a good conclusion. And uh, th that requires an openness and an ability to listen. The rush to, uh, to robos is classically system one. We just want a heuristic. And we'd rather be selling pizzas than, uh, than manage funds. And we know clients really don't want to answer any questions. But you can see the consequence. Low intimacy and low trust. Just wait till the market goes into a correction and sees, see what happens to the fund flows and redemptions out of robos. Well, the researchers found there were 19 different attributes of trust that were statistically significant, but most of those were pushed out in the, into the long tail. And I'll give you an example of that. The ability to conceive, execute and reassess a financial plan, nowhere near the top of that list. It's in ninth spot and it just has a 4% impact on overall trust, which is tiny. The two top factors in determining trust are being the client's advocate at 17%, and acting in the client's best interest at 15%. So, Paul, it seems it's not actually what you do, it's how you do it. That would seem to be the case, isn't it? It's, it's, it, it this is a very useful report. It's, uh, it, it was put together in two parts. A survey of, um, of investors to see what questions to put up, and then a much larger group. Yeah, or Almost 4,000 people in that sample. And it's a pretty good example to, to, to get going, um, to, to start thinking about the issues. But best interest and being on the client side um, is clearly a, a critical issue. And you, you can't be on the client side without listening to them. Inter interestingly, I think it's a great piece of research myself, but this, this was really interesting. You can destroy or damage trust by failing on any one of these criteria, even though its role in creating trust might have been minor. So, for example, you might have a high level of emotional trust, but all of that counts for nothing if a simple admin error causes the client a few headaches. And, and here's an example with some numbers. The advisor doing what they say they will do only contributes 3% to building trust, but failing to do what they said they would do was the reason for 25% of breakdowns in trust. Interesting numbers. Isn't it? And, and it, it's, it's almost a version of prospect theory again, isn't it? Back to Bunneman. Um, the, the, the gains and losses, you need to do a lot of gaining to, uh, to, to, um, to compensate for that loss. And, you know, three versus 20-odd, you've got to be doing lots of other things to recover trust with that client. So the report cites some key reasons for breakdowns in trust and they include portfolio underperformance, poor investment choices and neglecting the relationship. I guess if we look across those they're all held together by a theme of unmet expectations. I think that's the case. So I'm still talking with people who are who are alpha chasing for their clients or for their organisation. Um, it's, it, it, it's a terrific objective if it was possible, um, and if you allow clients to set their own objectives, that's what they'll look for. So the critical shift, as we see, to goals-based, target-based um, advice is that uh, you are taking control of the client's expectations, and the way you do that is classically from borrowing from traditional brands. Um, you must set the client's expectations, otherwise they will be disappointed. A very concentrated portfolio is highly likely to disappoint a client 
in the longer term. And I did have some concerns when we get to the list of reasons for broken trust, because number one on that list, and it's 46% of cases, is caused my portfolio to underperform. And my first reaction was, how did they cause it to underperform? Was it causing, was it choosing bad investments? And no, because only 4% of breakdowns were specifically put down to poor advice or poor investment decisions. So that, to me, was a strange anomaly in these numbers. Where it comes from, I suspect it is an argument, and I saw two bits this week, um, talking with, with, with um, both with, with, with good advisors who were setting goals that were inappropriate. You know, we'll, we'll be looking to get you 4% over inflation. Well, clearly that may or may not happen. Um, um, in the longer term, in the short term, there'll be all sorts of volatility. So by framing um, your performance against an absolute mark like that, you leave yourself very vulnerable. You'll get those uh, those responses. Tie it back to a goal and goal achievement. Um, you've got a much better chance of the client going. I understand that uh, um, the likelihood of my achieving my goal may have diminished, but I've got plenty of time to uh, to, to catch up with that, or I'm going to have to change my behaviour or change the goal. But um, you're, you're not setting yourself against a benchmark where you have very little control. So much better set against goals than against uh, um, arbitrary benchmarks like 4% over inflation. And you're pointing to a live issue because right behind that first caused my portfolio to underperform, the next two reasons are on 44% did not pay attention to me or my, po- me or my portfolio, so neglect. And then on 43%, I know this one is going to warm your heart, Paul, steered me towards poor investment choices given my risk tolerance and goals. You must be very, very happy to see that actually come up in those words in one of these big three breakdown of, breakdowns of reasons because you've been talking about this for years. Yeah, we've been going almost 20 years. It's taken a long time to come through, but, but the first two comments come back to the same framing issue, don't they? That the, They're disappointed because the advisor either traded the portfolio and got it wrong or traded the portfolio or didn't trade the portfolio and got it wrong. That's why they Not paying um, attention to the portfolio could be the most appropriate decision to make. Exactly right. And so that sounds like they were not appropriately framed as to how the, the relationship and the planning worked. Are you going to be a market trader? If you are, you tell the client you're going to do that, but you set yourself up to be judged as a successful trader. Now, if we go back to the due diligence that we uh, that we see, particularly in the UK suitability world of saying, whatever tools you use, make sure that um, you've done an appropriate review, you understand their strengths and weaknesses, and you compensate for the weaknesses. Now, that's easy enough to apply to a risk tolerance process or risk profiling process. We should also apply it to the investment competency that's being applied. And therefore, if you're, as an advisor, how you decide to um, manage the client's money has to be equally as defensible. You have to have a proven methodology, have done a due diligence on it, understand its weaknesses and compensate for them in the way that you manage it, 
And as we see in many in many countries, certainly here in the UK, many advisors are outsourcing their investment management to mitigate that risk. Their major research responsibility is to understand the investment strategy of the outsourced investment management. That should mitigate against the complaints that sit there of uh, the dissatisfaction of uh, I wasn't listened to. Let me quickly run through some of the items on the breakdown of trust list. In 35% of breakdowns, the reason was that the advisor did not achieve what they promised, which could be a lot of different things. Tied on 34% was did not make me feel important and lack of timely communication. And that's once again a neglect factor, which is surprising that people would treat their clients in that way. On 25% did not do what they promised to do, as I mentioned earlier. On 22% was condescending. So one in five people had a problem with trusting their advisor because they treated them in a condescending manner, which is a is a startling thing. Similar, did not explain things in a way that I understood was at 21%, did not take my concerns or questions seriously at 20%, did not act morally in 18% of cases, took advantage or acted in their own interest was only 5%. So I think the lesson here, Paul, is you don't have to be a crook to break trust. You simply have to let them down. It would seem so. And it, it ties back into to, to the challenges of paternalism versus collaboration and vulnerability again. Um, when I hear some of those, that those issues that, that rate so highly of not being listened to, that reminds me of... Um, of a number of people who, who tell me that they tell the client what to do. That's why the client's there. They, they, they use a metaphor, they're a surgeon. Um, the client's come in with an ailment and they've fixed it. Um, now, when, when markets are good, that, that, that style does work. But, um, but clearly what we're seeing here is the recognition that many clients are not happy with that and do want their voices to be heard. And the best way to do that is through collaborative planning, where it's not the advisor's role to tell the client what to do, but to help the, the client understand the consequences, the trade-offs, and own the plan. And what you see there is, the, is a good examples of the, uh, the client not owning their plan, the advisor actually owns it. And when you say collaborative plan, it's, it's, it's a nice, easy thing to say, but it's actually a devilishly hard thing to deliver because you have to become collaborative at many, many different stages. It means you write your website differently, you phrase what you do differently, you deliver your services differently because... Looking back through that list that I just went through, all the breakdowns of trust did not make me feel important, didn't talk to me, um, didn't pay attention to me or my portfolio. These are the signs of somebody who wanted to make a sale and move on. I may be being harsh, but that's what it looks like to me. Well, that's always been the challenge in our industry as we move from being uh, remunerated for selling equities to... Um, to being paid for giving ongoing advice. Um, this won't be the first time we'll see will have seen um, um, tables like this, and it certainly uh, it is our greatest of challenge. And it's a great challenge for enterprises, um, that they've been largely transactional and um, have been concerned by, by giving too much autonomy to, this, to their advisors. And we've certainly seen that in, in Australia, haven't we, with uh, the various banks having had their reputation well and truly 
damaged by the autonomy that existed in the planning environment and now seeking to uh, to put in tight processes to diminish the likelihood of mis-selling. Um, it'll be an interesting exercise to see how they progress. And technology should be a helper for that. In the old days when everything was paper-based, you couldn't see in real time what people were actually doing out in the far-flung branches of a business, but now you can. Well, that's certainly um, where, where, where we see the future as... Uh, Many of our um, listeners will know we've merged with uh, Finometrica with Plan Plus, and in combination, we are an algo house. Um, we bring together two algorithms, one of risk tolerance and the other of asset and liability matching. Um, all of that leads to the capacity to control, to a great degree, the client experience. Um, the, the language we're using for that is a professional judgment matrix where we're um, making sure that all of the criteria, the trade-offs, risk required, the risk capacity, are properly recorded and can be shared with the client so that the client gets at least some engagement in their plan and it's not just, this is the product of the week. And what comes through from this report is that transparency is important, particularly in fees. Fees are important in two ways. One, that they be reasonable, and two, that they be fully disclosed and transparent. But they are a conflict of interest, aren't they? They always have been. And uh, people need to understand, our customers need to understand the consequence of fees um, the same way as they need to understand the conflicts of um, vertically integrated ownership. Um, so disclosure is a prerequisite of trust. Um, and as we've argued for, for many a year, one of our proofs of suitability is the client saying, I've made an informed commitment to this plan. It's my informed consent. It can't be informed if there's opacity and there isn't full disclosure of conflicts of interest. High fees are one of them. So at, at the risk of sounding trite, let me go back through that list and just invert them and look what that looks like because really that that's our our form guide of what we need to do so did not pay attention to me and what my portfolio becomes paid attention to me steered me towards good investment choices given my tolerance and goals listened to me communicated with me wasn't condescending explained things in a way that I can understand this is the template for how you act honestly ethically and create trust it would seem to be the case wouldn't it Craig Indeed. And on that note, we'll wrap it up. Paul Resnick from Plan Plus Global, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Craig. Now, folks, a final reminder before we go that to get a copy of this report, Google Vanguard Trust and Financial Advice, and you'll find it pretty easily in the results. And a final thank you to our program sponsor, Plan Plus Global, the company behind Plan Plus Planet, My Plan Plus, and Finometrica. That's our program for today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Craig Saunders. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.